everyone, this is Caleb, and I'm so excited that you've decided to spend a few minutes today here with me on the Learner's Corner podcast. And today, I am honored to be joined by Ron Friedman. And today, I am talking with him about his recently released book called Decoding Greatness, How the Best Reverse Engineer Success. However, this happens to be your first time listening to the Learner's Corner. I'm going to tell you a little bit about what we like to do here. There's really two uh, driving beliefs for the Learner's Corner. The first is that we want this to be a place to have, or a safe place to have difficult conversations because if you've gone throughout life, you've probably realized that you can't just talk with anyone about anything or uh, or anything at all. Or there's probably some people that you could talk with some things about them with, uh, but obviously there are certain things that you've just learned through experience, as I have, that it's better just to not talk about certain people or t- not talk about certain subjects with certain people. And really here on the Learner's Quarter, we want to create a safe place to have some of those difficult conversations and emotional conversations without any fear of shame or rejection or or bullying or anything like that. And because we want to create a safe place to learn, which leads me to kind of the second thing that drives it is that we believe that we can learn from anyone and from anyone or from anyone and everyone and from anything and everything. And sometimes that means learning from learning what not to do from people and learning uh, the example not to follow. And other times it is learning from examples of how people have handled situations really well that have led to uh, growth and flourishing for them as well. And so that's what we want to do here on The Learner's Corner. And today we happen to be talking with Ron Friedman. I'll tell you a little bit about Ron here in just a second. Uh, but I do want to give you a heads up that uh, that there's not going to be uh, a recommended resource of the week for this podcast. I'm going to be trying something new here uh, coming up in a few weeks on a uh, on an exclusive, I don't know if exclusive isn't the isn't the right word for it, um, but just releasing an episode with just kind of some of the things that I've been learning from recently, which will include a lot of uh, recommended resources and then just some of the things that have been making me think and some of the things that I've been thinking about as well. So that will be coming up in a few weeks. So, uh, however, I do have something that I want to tell you about uh, that in my uh, in my uh, pr- preparation for the conversation. That I'm gonna, uh, that you're gonna listen to here in a few minutes with Ron. I did come across something from him that I wanted to share, and this will be in the show notes. And it's about how to spend the last 10 minutes of your day. And really, what he talks about is that, um, that the last part of your day can help set up the first part of your day for it. And one of the biggest things, uh, he talks about is learning to prepare yourself to go to bed so that you can wake up more rested in that. And so he gives uh, some different suggestions that can help with that. So I'm going to link to that in the show notes. And yeah, let me tell you a little bit about Ron. Ron is an award-winning psychologist who has served on the faculty of several prestigious colleges in the United States and has consulted for political leaders, nonprofits, and many of the world's most recognized brands. Many accounts of his research have been have appeared in major newspapers, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, and uh, Harvard Business Review and Psychology Today. 
Ron is the founder of Ignite80, a learning and development company that translates research in neuroscience, human physiology, and behavioral economics into practical strategies that help working professionals become healthier, happier, and more productive. His first book, The Best Place to Work, was selected as an Inc. Magazine Best Business Book of the Year. And without any further wait, here is my conversation with Ron Friedman. Well, Ron, so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. And just as we get started, anytime that I'm talking with someone who has come out with a brand new book or um, or a piece of art or anything like that, I love hearing the story behind what made someone want to create this thing. And so I would just love to hear what's the event or the series of events that led you to want to write Decoding Greatness. Well, my background is I'm a social psychologist and my focus is on human motivation. And my first book was called The Best Place to Work, The Art and Science of Creating an Extraordinary Workplace. And in it, I took over a thousand academic studies and I translated them into plain English so that regardless of whether you're a CEO or just someone who's starting out, you had access to the best science on how to elevate your performance and create a great workplace. But there was something missing in that book. And what was missing is that even within the best workplaces, there are a range of performance levels. Some people are extraordinary at what they do and others are not. And so in this book, in Decoding Greatness, I was interested in exploring what are the factors that differentiate top performers from everyone else. And what I discovered is that they're using a strategy that few people have have heard of or you know, frankly, talk about, but it's remarkably common among inventors and entrepreneurs and artists. And that practice is reverse engineering. And we'll be talking about that today. Yeah. And uh, before we get into, you know, unpacking kind of what reverse engineering is, I would just be curious to hear, you know, in your research, what are some of the, the common things or maybe some of the hidden things that you've seen that tend to get in the way of people experiencing greater success than what they uh, may may be able to experience. I think one of the big challenges is that people don't strive to achieve great things. And that may seem a little counterintuitive, I think, particularly for this audience, which is tends to be uh, in their 20s and 30s, um, they still have big ideas. They still have big dreams. Sadly, I think a lot of folks, you know, by the time you get to your 30s, you got some kids, maybe uh, you have some bills to pay, you're saddled with college loans. And all of a sudden, having a steady job starts to feel pretty good. (laughs) And what I argue in this book is that part of the reason why so many of us settle is because we've been told that there are only two main ways of achieving greatness. And so one of the big stories is that greatness is achieved through talent, meaning that you have to be born with a particular strength and that your job is to just really find a good feel that allows your inner strengths to shine. And then the other big story is that you need to practice for a really, really long time. 10,000 hours is what Gladwell says, right? 10,000 hours, you need to have the discipline to do a lot of practice. And that often takes more than a decade. And so when you're in your 30s and you're like, man, I don't have time to practice. Uh, I barely have time to even watch television. You give up on those dreams. And so 
in doing the research for this book, what I discovered is that really there's another way and it doesn't take 10 years and you don't have to be born with greatness. You don't have to be born with talent. That's not to suggest that talent doesn't matter or that having the discipline to practice doesn't help. Absolutely, those two things help. But if you're just uh, just relying on talent or practice, then chances are it, you're going to give up on your dreams unless you achieve early success. And I want to fight back against that by giving people the tools to pursue their dreams, even if they're older. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so as you mentioned, you know, kind of the thing that you recommend is reverse engineering. Can you unpack kind of what that is and how that how that plays out? Yeah. So reverse engineering simply means finding great examples in whatever field you happen to be in and then taking them apart, working backward to figure out how they were created in order to learn how you can improve your skills on the on your next attempt. So uh, just to give you some examples of how this is done, th- this is the idea of reverse engineering is very popular in Silicon Valley. There's a very long history of programmers taking apart code to figure out how is this created? How can I, how can I apply this uh, to another product? And this is how we got the personal computer. It's how we got laptops. It's how we got the iPhone. But outside of Silicon Valley, it's also pretty popular. And what most people don't realize is that reverse engineering is also how Malcolm Gladwell and Stephen King learned to write and how artists like Pablo Picasso and Claude Monet learned to paint and how um, uh, comedians like Judd Apatow learn to write comedy. It's by finding great examples in your field and then working backwards to figure out how they were created. Now, how you go about reverse engineering is going to depend on your particular field. There are a host of strategies and all of them involve taking apart great examples. So in the, I can give you some examples. In the case of writers, what writers will often do, nonfiction writers in particular, they will go right to the bibliography section and the notes section at the back of the book to figure out what are the sources that this writer used to create this work. Uh, artists, uh, like um, uh, photographers, for example, they will look to not necessarily just at the object at the center of the photo. What they will look at is the length of the shadows. And the reason they're looking at the shadows is because it tells them the positioning of the light source and the time of day that the photo was was shot. Chefs often order dishes to go and then they spread the sauce on a white plate to figure out what the ingredients were. Sometimes they use a magnifying glass. So all of these examples illustrate how it really depends on your particular field. And in Decoding Greatness, what I talk about is how you can apply this to office work. You can do this for emails. You can do this for proposals. You can do this for TED Talks. And in fact, one of the things I do in the book is I show you how to reverse engineer a TED Talk and turn it into a template so that you can have the tools to create your own TED Talk without necessarily banging your head against the wall for a really long period of time because it's actually much simpler when you have that template. Mm-hmm. Uh one of the things that I would love uh, to do is like, I'm thinking of the person who's listening, you know, maybe it says you said that they're a communicator and they want to learn to, you know, uh, become better at communicating, or maybe they're a better leader, or maybe they're a parent. They're like, Hey, I want to become, you know, whatever the thing is. And so walk me through maybe like, what does the pro and I mean, you talked about it a little bit, you know, you try to, you look to examples of people who you want to be like, mm-hmm. um, but after you've done that, what does the process look like after? okay, I found the people that I want to learn from. What does the re-engineering, reverse engineering look like? So the first step is, as you correctly noted, is finding those great examples. And it's starting a collection. That's my first big tip for this book is you want to start a collection. And what I mean by that is anytime you encounter an example in your field that you want to better understand, you want to 
lodge that somewhere so that you can revisit it in the future. It could be as simple as just bookmarking a page. So if there's a great website you come across, bookmark it under great websites. Could be a great landing page, could be a great email, could be a proposal. Um, And once you have those examples collected in a particular place, and again, I mentioned bookmarking, you can also use Pinterest. Some people like to use Evernote, Google Docs, whatever the case may be. Just have a place that's easily accessible and easy to store because you don't want to have to, like if you're busy in the middle of a workday, you don't have to like, oh, where's that collection? I don't want to make work for you. Make it easy on yourself, right? So once you have that collection, then here's what that enables you to do is now you can start comparing what's in your collection against average examples that didn't make your collection. So by comparing the ordinary against the extraordinary, that process, I call it like spot the difference, right? Remember that game as kids, you have two images side by side. What's different about this image? You have to ask yourself, what's different about this example? And when you do that, you can't help but identify those ingredients that make a work resident and unique. So once you've determined, okay, this is what makes this different, now you can create a checklist for yourself of what your website or TED Talk or email needs to contain. So just to break this down and make it concrete, uh, I give the example in the book of a well-written email to a client. So let's say you um, encounter an email from a colleague or you receive an email from someone that is just really well done. And you're like, man, I wish I could write like this. So now instead of just being jealous about that person, now you have a, a, a path to actually learning from that. So now you could say, okay, what's different about this email? And one of the other tools I talk about, and I give you a number of tools in this book, is reverse outlining. So just to make that, so first let me define it and then I'll yeah. show you how to use it. So rever- everybody has heard of outlining. Outlining is the process of bullet pointing what you intend to put in a finished piece before you've created it. Reverse outlining is taking someone else's finished work and then turning it into bullet points with one bullet point for each paragraph. So now when you turn it back into, it's like going backwards, right? So you take the finished product, you go back to the thing that that person used to create it. Once you have those bullet points, then you could start spot, start spotting patterns about like what's happening in the first paragraph, what's happening in the second paragraph, what's happening in the third paragraph. So um, to put that uh, example to uh, the test, so let's say you, t- you want to reverse outline that well-written email, what you might find is that uh, in the first paragraph, the person is connecting with the recipient on something that has nothing to do with work. Like, you know, I, I know you're taking your kids out to the, to, to, uh, the uh, water park. I hope you had a great time. Then the second paragraph, they're asking for the thing they need to ask for. Then on the third paragraph, they're explaining why it would, it's important for that person to give them the thing that they're asking for. And then on the fourth paragraph, they're just giving them some uh, interesting article that they might be might find interesting relevant to work. So now, you, by reverse outlining it, you've got four bullet points. You know exactly what needs to happen in every paragraph, and now you've got a template for yourself to write your client email so that you can learn from that model. Yeah. What are some of the other separators that you've seen that distinguish people? I mean, you talked about the pattern recognition, which is one, which is one of the things that's really stood out to me reading the book. Mm-hmm. What are some of those other separators that, like, hey, if you Like if you do this through reverse engineering or even stuff outside of that, that you've seen, this leads to great success. And it isn't as difficult as maybe as what we might think. Oh man, there's so many I can give you, but I'm going to, I'm going to start with, um, just talking about before we get into like, what are the other separators? I just want to say like the many uses of reverse engineering and just one other great example that I think people will appreciate is that you can use this to spot patterns that you wouldn't have been completely blind to that can help you create things that are actually very creative. So 
one of my favorite stories in the book is Kurt Vonnegut and how he would use reverse engineering to to learn from the best written stories in the world. And what he did was he his his thing was he would take stories and turn them into pictures. And here's how we would do it. He would map out what was happening to the protagonist in the story over time. And so basically it was like giving a story an x-ray. And he would just graph out from on the on the on the uh, x-axis on the bottom, it was like from the beginning to end. On the y-axis from the bottom to the top is how are things going for the protagonist? Are they good or are they bad? And in doing this, what he discovered is that there are basically six stories throughout all of uh, all of Netflix and all of the libraries. Like that's all you're going to find is six basic stories. And we're so enamored with the same patterns that we don't even notice that we're hearing the same story more than once. So a great example of this is comparing Cinderella to Annie. Both of them are basically the same story. In both cases, at the beginning, things are going poorly for the protagonist. Annie is an orphan. Cinderella is being abused by her stepsisters and her stepmothers. Then something great happens. Annie gets rescued by Daddy Warbucks. Cinderella goes to the ball. Then something terrible happens. Annie gets kidnapped by people pretending to be her parents. Cinderella, the clock strikes midnight. She's back to square one. And then finally, something great happens. Everything is resolved. They both live happily ever after. And so they're basically the same stories with different um, characters. And when you zoom out, when you reverse outline, when you reverse engineer what's happening in these stories, that's when you start to see the patterns. And when you have those templates, now you have a mechanism for creating your new story or novel or whatever the case may be. Whatever it is you're interested in learning, reverse engineering can help. Now, in the second half of the book, I give you a whole bunch of tools for uh, bridging the gap between your vision and ability. And, uh, you know, I think once you have that reverse outline or whatever, wh- how, whatever it is you're trying to reverse engineer, once you have that template, you're not necessarily going to be great at executing it right out of the gate. So the next part is uh, rapid knowledge acquisition. In other words, how, how are you going to get good at building your skills? That's what the second half of the book is about. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about... Uh because one of the things I've been thinking about recently is like what you get through the second and third times through the the piece of art or the book or whatever mm-hmm. it might be that you don't pick up the first time that you're going through something. Yeah. So I talk in the book about how um, successful novelists are um, well known for rereading books multiple times. Now, most people don't reread books. They typically just read a book once. I mean, it's hard enough to find time to read a book the first time, let alone to read it three or four times. But the reason they're doing that is because what they've come to realize is that the first time you read a book, you're primarily focused on what's happening and to whom. And the second time you read a book, now you know what's going to be happening. So now you're better equipped and you have more capacity to start looking at, okay, what information didn't the author share at a certain point? And what characteristics didn't they reveal until later on? And then how did they... Uh, how do they uh, present this character and what words are they using and what ad, how, how, what, you know, how, how are the adjectives, what level of description? The same is true for movies and songs. You get much better at de- decoding how they were constructed the second and third time you go through them. And so there are different um, benefits to reading and rereading. And if you're really interested in taking apart someone's formula, I highly recommend experiencing their work through different mediums. And so what I mean by that is you might read Decoding Greatness, but then you might listen to the audiobook. And I'm willing to bet that you will pick up on different things during those different experiences because your mind just works that way where you're just attuned to different clues. Mm-hmm. 
And I don't know. Uh, I mean, I imagine this, this might be a little bit of a leading question, but I found it myself that like I become a much better judge on the second, third, fourth time through it. I mean, yeah. is that is that the case or? You know, I think it's not just that you be, we're more sensitive to what's working, what's not. I also think that, particularly with books, it needs to catch you at the right point in your life. You know what I mean? Like you can read the same book in your 20s or 30s and 40s and um, maybe in your 20s you'll think, wow, that was an amazing book. And when you're 40 or 30, you're like, wow, what a piece of crap. And it's not because the book has changed. The same book, you're just in a different place in your life. And so it's interesting because it's kind of like romantic partners. You, they ha- you have to catch the right person at the right time. It's not just objectively, this was a good book or this was not a good book. Mm-hmm. What surprised you when you were researching for this book and learning for this book that uh, that maybe you went into with thinking, hey, things might be this way, but it ended up being something completely different. Um, there, There's a lot, but one of the things that I'd point to is that there's even a formula for evolving formulas. That's something I wasn't expecting. And so in, in the first chapter of the book, I talk about how reverse engineering is happening in all of these different fields. And, and in the second chapter, I show you how you can reverse engineer in your field. And then in the third chapter, I show you how to take a formula and evolve it a little bit so that you could be creative and original and not just duplicate someone else's work. Because that's the big fear that I think a lot of creative professionals have. They don't just want to be derivative. They don't just want to copy someone else's work. And that's a very fair criticism. And it was something I was worried about, frankly, as I was writing this book. But what I discovered, uh, this, I guess, is the second uh, surprising thing that I discovered while doing the research, is that copying actually makes you more creative. And here's what I mean by that. There's research out of the University of Tokyo that shows that if you copy someone else's work, that your later work will improve in terms of its creativity as a function of your having copied. And so in this study, they took a group of artists, amateur artists, they brought them into the lab and they divided them into two groups. The first group was asked to create original artwork for three days straight. The second group was asked to create original artwork on day one. On day two, they were asked to copy the work of an established artist. And then on day three, they were asked to resume creating original works. And what the researchers were interested in is uh, which of the two groups is most creative on the final day of the experiment? Is it the group that just created original works the entire time or the second group, the group that had paused to copy the work of an established artist? And what they found was it was the second group. The second group was more creative on the final day. And it wasn't simply uh, because they copied the style of art that they, uh, of the established artist in their original work. They went off in completely different directions that had nothing to do with the work they had copied. And it's because the process of paying very close attention to someone else's work and then trying to recreate it, comparing your instinctive inclinations against their decisions forces you to identify all these great opportunities that are hidden in your work. And so far from making us more, um, far from making us less creative, it's actually a, a mechanism by which you can elevate your creativity is actually study someone else's work really, really closely. So I think this rap that people have in the back of their minds, like, hey, I don't want to be a, I don't want to be a hack. I'm not going to reverse engineer. I think that is the wrong way of going at it because not only are you going to be elevating your skill by discovering all of these new techniques, you're also going to be fueling your creativity in the process. Yeah. Uh, I guess in, in the in the spirit of what you were talking about of the evolving theory, I want to ask you, I know that you have to turn in books way sooner than, you know, 
then they actually come out. Yeah. What have what have you learned in between like your time finishing the book and like today to where it's like, wow, I learned this maybe about re-engineering or reverse engineering or um or that you wish that you could have explored more in the book or something that you've learned about to where it's like, hmm, this is really uh something interesting that hmm. uh that has been piquing your interest in terms of that. You know, over the course of doing, I've, I've done a lot of podcasting uh, after the book has come out. This is the way, prim, the primary way in which you promote books now is you do a lot of podcasts. And one of the things that I've uh, I've been struck by is the, the 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 ways in which reverse engineering can actually help us become better people. And it's not something I discussed in the book. I'm considering uh, exploring that perhaps in a follow up book or maybe even a, a course. But I think you can reverse engineer your best life by Really being uh, focused on what are the what are the what are the goals and achievements you're striving to achieve, and I think many of us don't have that. Many of us just simply go through life responding to the opportunities that we're presented with without being strategic about what we're really trying to achieve. And if you apply some of the techniques in this book to figuring out how can I reverse engineer my best self. I think you can actually accelerate that process. So just to give you one yeah. uh, key technique, uh, in the book, I talk about how if you want to improve at anything, particularly a formula you've reverse engineered, you want to set up some metrics so that you can give yourself quick and easy feedback on how you're doing. Uh, we know in the business world, businesses are um, enamored with metrics. They measure everything. And it's because they know that anything you improve, you measure, you're likely to improve on what gets measured, gets, uh, improve. What's the, what's the term? What gets measured gets managed, right? That's the, yeah. that's the famous quote. Um, and so we can apply that to our own lives by setting aside some time and figuring out what am I really trying to achieve? And then creating some metrics for yourself that you can hold yourself accountable on a daily basis. So that might, just to give you some examples, that might be uh, how many f- uh, uninterrupted minutes that I have at work today? If you're trying to build your focus, that might be one metric. Another metric might be how much time did I spend with my my uh, significant other or kids today? Uh, how much quality time did I have for that? Um, how you know the, the, one of the examples I give in the book is um, Marshall Goldsmith likes to review every day. Did I say something nice to my spouse? Um, and that's a, he he monitors that metric. And the more things you track on a daily basis, the more likely you're going to come closer to achieving your ultimate goals. And so I think there's, there's, there's in the, this book is primarily focused on how you can learn from the best in the world and apply their techniques to elevate your skills. Um, but I, I also think that many of these techniques are also relevant to just becoming a better, better, fuller person. Yeah. One of the things that uh, I really wanted to talk to you about whenever I got the book was uh, you have this section called How to Talk to Experts. Yeah. And I was reading through that. And obviously, you know, being being a podcaster and everything, like I took a lot from it. But I think just learning to ask people better questions is something that any we all need to improve on that. I would just love uh, your thoughts on unpacking, because, you know, you talk about journey questions, process questions, and discovery questions. Mm-hmm. Would you mind talking a little bit about those and how that that's the better approach whenever it comes to the experts and asking them questions. Yeah. So just first, let me start by giving some context about yeah. why 
speaking with experts is actually quite difficult. And it's not because you're necessarily intimidated by them, but rather because they're actually quite bad at explaining to you why they were successful. And it's not because they're not trying. It's because, or they don't want to help. It's because they suffer from the curse of knowledge. And if you're not familiar with the term, the curse of knowledge simply means that the more you know about something, the harder it becomes to imagine not knowing anything about it. And if you're talking to a novice, which many of us are, if we're trying to learn a particular field, there's going to be a communication gap. And so if I talk in the book about how if you've ever had trouble understanding what a Home Depot a sales associate was saying, that's, that's probably because of the curse of knowledge. They know so much about the different parts and tools and you don't. And you're like, I have no idea what you're saying to me right now. Same, same with doctors sometimes, right? Or a mechanic. That's the curse of knowledge. And so what you really need to do is you need to come prepared with the right questions in order to interpret or, or rather to, to focus them on giving you the information that you need. And so there are three types of questions that I recommend if you're looking to have a conversation with an expert and reverse engineer how they got to the top of their field. So if you're someone who is, for example, striving to become the vice president of sales in your organization, talking to your vice president of sales, you're going to want to have some specific questions to come prepared with. And so those three types of questions are journey questions, process questions, and discovery questions. And I give you examples of each of these in the book, but just to define the term. So Journey questions are focused on the uh, on uncovering the expert's roadmap for success. So an example of a journey question is, what mistakes did you make at the beginning? And so by asking them a specific question about the beginning and early stages of their career, now you're focusing them on highlighting some information that could be useful to you. The second type of question is a process question. The process question is simply trying to get them to talk about the minutia of their everyday existence. So uh, if you're in the process of building a sales campaign, how do you go about it? What do you do first? What do you do next? What comes after that? Just, just really kind of sticking with them and having them go step by step. Because if you ask them a broad, broad general question, chances are they'll gloss over a lot of important information. So having those process questions ready is important. And the third type of question has to do with discoveries. So what are some things that they uncovered over the course of their career that they weren't expecting? So an example of a discovery question might be looking back on over the course of your career, what surprised you the most? So those are just one example each of each of the three categories of questions. There are plenty more examples, but you want to come prepared with these questions because if you're just having an open-ended conversation with someone, you're asked them to, you know, tell them about, tell you about how to become great, it's going to be really hard for them to supply you with the right information. And again, it's not because they're not trying, it's because of the curse of knowledge. Yeah. Is there anything, and not necessarily just with experts, but anything that you've learned just through your, I mean, I know that you had to do a lot of research of, you know, learning through things, whether it be about learning or even just becoming a better question answer or asker that you learned through the process of writing, you know, decoding greatness. Mm, That's a great question. Um, What did I learn about asking questions? You know, one of my favorite tips, this is now, this became a tip in the book, the better way to get feedback from others. And it comes uh, by asking a particular type of question. And it's, I give the example of um, Mike Birbiglia. This is the the famous comedian, playwright. He came up with this question. And so when he writes a play and he wants to get feedback from his close friends and uh, colleagues, he doesn't ask them, what do you think? And that's what most of us do, right? We want feedback on something. Hey, what do you think? Or we might ask, do you like this? 
And that's even worse because it um, makes it really hard for them to say, no, I don't like this. And so one of the things you have to be aware of when you're asking people for feedback is that they, uh, particularly people you know or are interacting with face-to-face, they want to maintain the friendship. And sometimes giving you honest feedback interferes with that. And they are very aware of that. And so most people, given the choice, will prioritize the relationship over accuracy. And so you want to counter that. And Mike Birbiglia um, has a question that can help. And so when he shows, uh, he goes through a show or he goes through a play uh, and he asks for feedback, the question that he uses is, when were you bored? And so that's a very precise question. And it's one that makes it easier for the people evaluating you to pinpoint precisely what they felt in a particular moment, as opposed to like what they'll often do, which is try to tell you how to fix it if they, or if they don't know how to fix it, they just say it was good. Like what is, that's not helpful, right? So you need specificity in the feedback and you also want to incentivize people to give you the kind of feedback that will make you better. And this is actually one of the more interesting findings in the book is that experts actually prefer negative feedback over positive feedback. Why is that? It's because positive feedback can help you improve. The best it can do is help you stay the same. But negative feedback offers clues about things you can improve. And most of us have such a hard time dealing with negative feedback that we ask questions like, do you like it, right? Because we want that positive feedback. But if you're actually interested in getting better, want negative feedback. Yeah. Just as uh, we're moving towards closing, I think the final thing I want to ask you is, you know, what's something that we haven't talked about a whole lot or that you would just say um, doesn't get a whole lot of airtime in in the broader, you know, cultural business conversation that uh, that you would say, this is actually a really crucial component to success that does not get talked about at all or hardly any. Oh man, there's so many that I can yeah. point to. <laughs> You know, I'll give you one final tip that I really love in this book. And that is, and this is something that I wish I had known many years ago. And it is, it's a a strategy that I call sell first, build later. And um, I'll illustrate it with a story. And it's the story of a guy named Nick Swinmurm. And in in 1999, Nick Swinmurm was just a guy living in Silicon Valley who was looking for a pair of shoes at the mall. And he knew exactly which one he wanted. He knew what color they needed to be. And he's walking around the mall and he can't find them. And he gets increasingly frustrated. He's wasting his time. And he thinks to himself, man, there has to be a better way to buy shoes. Now, remember, this is 1990s. There's there's nowhere to buy shoes. So... Um, he thinks to himself, I'm going to start a website. I'm going to start a website. I'm going to sell shoes. But he has no money. So this is where most of us were just like, all right, next idea. What am I going to do? I, I, can't, I can't build a shoe warehouse. And he needed a shoe warehouse, right? So here's what he did instead. And this was brilliant. Is he goes to his local shoe store and he asks to speak to the manager. And he says to the manager, hey, I'd like to take photos of all of your shoes and I'm going to put them on my website. If anybody buys any of the shoes, I'm going to come here. I'm going to buy them from you and I'm going to mail them to that person. Does that sound good to you? And the manager's like, sure, why not? So this is what he does. He creates a website, takes the photos, starts selling the shoes. That website became Zappos. And the guy's a billionaire now. He's retired, right? He's like 40. He's retired. He's a billionaire and he's retired. And what we can learn from that story is you rather than 
going to build the perfect thing and then hoping that you can sell it, you should start with the sale. And that can mean going to a manager or to a client and pitching them an idea that you could create if if, um, you were given the right resources. Uh, If you're an entrepreneur, it's about creating that sales page and seeing if you get any sales and then, you know, saying it's backlogged and coming back and when it's ready. Uh, but it really is the case of taking... What that does is it gives you... It gives, this strategy gives you the opportunity to take more swings without wasting your time. And it gives you early feedback because remember, it does, new, does you no good to build the perfect version of something nobody wants. And so start selling your ideas rather than focusing on perfecting them. That's good. Well, Ron, I know that people are going to want to pick up your book, Decoding Greatness, and just continue to keep up with you. Where's the best place for people to go to do all of those things? Well, the best place to go is to decodinggreatnessbook.com. And I mentioned that website because you can buy the book anywhere. But if you send us your receipt, we'll send you a free course on how to start reverse engineering in your field. It's completely free. Uh, you can learn more about me at uh, ignite80.com. That's the name of my company. And at Ignite80, the reason it's called that is because over 80% of employees are not fully engaged at work. And so our mission at Ignite80 is to teach leaders science-based strategies for creating happier, healthier, and more productive workplaces. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. My pleasure. There's a lot of takeaways that I had from this conversation. I remember whenever I finished reading the book for preparing for this and just, uh, especially with me, you know, I mean, I started a podcast called the Learner's Corner Podcast. And so reverse engineering people's successes is one of the things that I love to do. And so I remember reading the section on how to talk to experts and going like, yes, this is a must read. And I would say also just the pattern recognition as well. That's one of the things that I'm exploring right now and uh, trying to learn how to become better at, uh, at story analysis. That's kind of one of the things that I'm trying to learn a lot about right now. And uh, we talked about it in the interview, but just the, the gift of the second reading and being, and I think I've I've had to learn that you can't reread every single book that um, that you own or that you've read in your entire life. However, there are some that are so good that it is worth a second glance. That it is worth going after them again and reading a second and a third time for me. And yeah, just. Yeah, that's one of the things. Those are just a couple of the things that really stood out to me. If this happens to be your first time listening to the podcast, the best way that you could show support is by subscribing on whatever podcast player you use and uh, leave a rating and write a review on iTunes. I would greatly appreciate it. That helps a lot. Um, If you have something that you would love uh, for us to cover on the podcast, the best way to reach out to me is... Uh, through this email, learnerscornerpodcast at gmail.com. Would love to hear from you and any ideas or people that you would love to have um, on the podcast or topics that you would love uh, discussed. Would love to hear from you on that. And real quick, I want to say thank you to Sam Massey, who provides the music for this podcast, and Garrett Oler, who does the editing for this podcast and to Ron for being on the podcast and for doing the work of uh, just creating this incredible book as well. And so super grateful for all of you on that. And I think that's all that I have for today. And so until next time, keep learning and keep growing.